The scripture reading for today comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, good morning, church. Uh, children, uh, through second grade, you guys are dismissed for children's church. Reminder to parents to either pick up your kids right after or right before you take uh, communion. Uh, if you're visiting today I've never, and I've never met you, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. It's so good having you all here with us this morning. We're starting to draw to the uh, close the uh, uh, sermon series that we've been doing. Uh, it's all called Out of Context. And we've been looking at a bunch of different verses throughout the scriptures of verses that are commonly taken out of context. So for the sermon series, we have today's sermon uh, that will look at a passage out of Philippians. And next week, we're going to look at one more uh, verse that's taken out of context from the book of Revelation. Uh, then after that, uh, we are brought to the first Sunday of Advent, where we'll, we'll dive into another sermon series. And uh, we're going to go back into a book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible we did was a New Testament book, uh, so we like to go back and forth between Old and New Testament. So we're back to the Old Testament, and we're looking at a shorter book that uh, will only take uh, the season of Advent and Christmas to get through, but we're going to go through a sermon series on the book of Haggai. Uh, and it's one of those, those books, too, if you didn't even know that book is in the Bible and you want to bring yourself up to speed a little bit, it's a very short book, uh, a very, very uh, quick read. Uh, so you can start prepping for the sermon series now uh, by, by reading that, that book a couple times. But that's uh, one thing we'll be doing uh, come the season of Lent here. So let's go ahead and pray and uh, dive into uh, Philippians. Let's pray. God, you are the creator of all things, and you remind us that maybe the, the darkness of our ignorance and our doubt can never blind us from seeing your life-giving word. Your word is so powerful, and it can pierce through anything that we want to put up as a wall between us and hearing your word. So because of that, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit, uh, who inspired these words of scripture, now shine light into our hearts, into our eyes, and awaken us right now during this time to hear your life-giving truth in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the verse today that's commonly taken out of context comes from Philippians 4.13. Uh, and here's how the ESV, a different translation, says it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is the verse that's commonly taken out of context. Now this verse is very popular with athletes. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up too is that we have a, a great history here at Trinity of having folks that uh, are athletes, student athletes, or coaches, or folks that are involved in athletics, a parachurch ministry like FCA. So there's a lot of athletes here or people that are invested in athletes, so you probably have heard uh, this verse uh, uh, quite a bit. 
and, and it's, it's very, very popular in that realm. But it's one of those things that maybe if you're, you're, you're an athlete or you get to minister to athletes, maybe you've even seen it so serious that this is like a type of verse that an athlete would get tattooed on his or her body. Absolutely. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is, it is a very popular verse. But what happens, for example, if you have two different athletes from opposing teams, they both got this tattooed on their arm, right? And they, they're going into a game, they're mentally preparing for that game, and they're thinking about it, and they're praying this verse over the game. Lord, give me the strength for this upcoming game, and give me the win. Because it says all things, right? So I want that thing. If it's all things, I want the thing that's the win. Give me the strength to do uh, uh, so successful that I help bring my team to victory. Now, we all know the problem with this. If you have two people on two different athletic teams praying the same prayer on the same verse, one of them's going to lose, right? One of them, their team's going down, they're not going to be the victor. So what, what do we make of this verse then? Because that creates a problem. What does it mean for the athlete and the team who lost? Does that mean that, well, I guess he can't really do all things through Christ who strengthens him, right? Is, is there some doubt that he should have now on his faith in the gospel? And this, as you know, is not just a popular verse for athletes. It's also popular for many things outside of sports as well. It's applied, in a sense, in any situation where somebody wants to overcome anything because Christ is going to give us the strength to do, any, do, to do that. But it, it raises this question, like, really anything? any circumstance, any situation. For example, one time I threw my back out uh, pushing a wheelbarrow up a hill uh, full of landscaping rocks. Now, even when I say hill, that's kind of generous. It was a small incline, uh, and it was just me, the wheelbarrow, and a body that was approaching 40 at the time. And I, I threw out my back. So was one of my problems is I should have memorized this verse and said a little prayer before I went up that two-second incline uh, in order to overcome the incline and the, the, the weight of the wheelbarrow, and then I went to throwing out my back. I would have been just fine if I did that. Or here's another situation. What if you don't have a particular talent? Does this verse mean that God will give you the strength to have that talent? Because it says all things. Maybe he'll give you the strength to have any talent that you want. What if you're like me and you're terrible at singing? Does this mean that, that God would give you more than a joyful noise to the Lord, but actually the talented ability to sound good while you do it? If you, it says all things, and God will give you the strength to do it. Is that what the verse is getting at? Here's a third and final thing. Does this mean that God will give you the strength to avoid or overcome unpleasant outcomes, right? So one of the things I thought of, uh, this is, we're starting to get into the holiday season. It's right around the corner which is also the season of not only giving and receiving gifts and sharing food, it's also giving and receiving viruses, right? And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got, I got something, I got fever 103, and I was, like, uh, I was like, this is my time, I finally got COVID. Because, uh, because up until that point, like, I had avoided it. I'm, I'm one of those folks that you hear about, they're called Novids, they haven't had COVID yet, uh, that I know of, so I'm like, this is my time, that's what I got, and I took... I had like a fever 103, so I took a test because I was curious to see what was going on. It was negative, so I'm still a Novid, but I had something. And I remember when I got better, we had a friend who's a nurse, and I was telling her about it. And she's like, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going around right now. We got, we got COVID still going around. The flu's going around. 
RSVs going around. And then she said, there's some type of mysterious virus that we don't know what it is. Maybe that's what you got. So that's what, and now we have the holidays and you're going to be mixing it up with people and sharing potluck and, and then you're going to Christmas and like this is, this is, so is this your verse? To be able to get to January 2nd without getting sick? Lord, I just need to overcome all things if you just give me the strength to avoid these four ridiculous viruses, right? Is that, is that how you apply this verse? So we're going to consider that. Obviously, with these scenarios that I'm bringing up, it's like, you, you, if you're like me, you're like, this sounds like a suspicious application of this verse. It can't mean that, can it? So we're going to look at the verse as we've done with verses previous in context. And I'll even close, should athletes keep quoting the verse, right? Is it, is it still an appropriate verse for athletes to like? We'll get there in a moment. But let's first look at some of the verses around it. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And this is towards the end of the book of Philippians, but this section really got, gives a really good overview of some key themes in the entire book of Philippians. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or see, seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So that's a great summary of the book of Philippians. Notice these phrases, these words that he's using always and in every situation. He's exhorting us to a way of living out the faith, the Christian faith that impacts all of life in every moment. And he, he has about at least five things that characterize the Christian faith that he highlights in those verses. He says, pursue unity. Let your gentleness be evident to everybody. Turn away from anxiety by turning towards thankful prayer and the peace found in God. Guard your minds by setting them on good things, the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely. And then he finally says, rejoice in the Lord. And that, that term, rejoice or joy in the Lord, is a very key theme of the book of Philippians. And he's very emphatic about it. Check out verse 4 again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, if you remember, some of you might have been here when we preached through the book of Philippians back in 2019, that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Or maybe he might be in household rest, but some, some place where he, he, he's been convicted because he's been preaching the gospel, people haven't liked that. And so he's writing from being in prison in some, some regard, and he says, from prison, rejoice. And he says, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. And the reason this statement is profound is the word always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, of course, rejoice in good times, but always means rejoice even when times are tough. Even when the most important relationship in your life has some friction to it. Paul says, rejoice. Even when your job is kicking your butt and your coworkers are stressing you out, Paul would say, rejoice. When you have an avalanche of papers and finals due at the end of the semester, rejoice. When your little ones aren't sleeping through the night, rejoice. 
When the adoption process doesn't result in a new member of the family, Paul says rejoice. When your health begins to fail you and you struggle with constant fatigue, Paul would say rejoice. You get the idea. Always, every occasion is a call to rejoice. And you kind of ask the question, like, how can you do that? Especially with the examples that I just gave. Like, how can that be still a time of rejoicing? And what is important in what Paul is saying here is the source of our joy is not these circumstances, but, but the Lord himself. We remember that the source of our rejoicing is the Lord. It's not unpredictable circumstances, it's not unreliable relationships, and it's not an uncontrollable outcome, but it's a constant, faithful God who is there as the source of our joy. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says, the faithful, reliable, sovereign king of all. Rejoice in him. And that's the truth of, of the gospel, our brothers and sisters that that constant reality in our life gives us grounds for rejoicing, even if everything else in life can seem so unsettled, Jesus is sure and he is faithful. And this is what remains true regardless of your situation. Your sins are forgiven. Your righteousness is firm in Christ before God. You've been adopted in Christ by your Father in heaven. You have a promised inheritance in Christ that's guaranteed through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will be raised from the dead and reside forever and ever in a new heaven and new earth. And those things never change even if the circumstances and situation in your life change. So that means their source of joy is always steady. You always have him. And that's Philippians, in a nutshell, is that type of theme. So now we get to the verses right around verse 13. Let's start leaning into those. Look at verse 10 first. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that, you, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. When Paul says at, at last, what is he getting at? This is almost like sometimes the Bible is like reading a text message where it's hard to know like tone and what, what do you mean by that, Paul? Because at first it can mean like, oh, at last, like you finally got around to being generous to me. You guys were just such stingy people, but finally you, you, you gave to me. But that's probably not the way to read it considering uh, how, how tight his relationship is with these brothers and sisters in Christ. More likely what Paul is saying when he says at last, he's, he's not really saying like, well, finally, but more like saying you have finally an opportunity. An opportunity came to you to be generous towards me, and when that door opened, you went through it, and you were generous towards me. He goes on in verses 11 through 12, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And we'll get to that verse here in a bit. But let's look at verses 11 through 12 first, because it's the proper context for understanding verse 13. And as you note, the text is all about contentment. And being content means being satisfied no matter the circumstances, whether you have needs or whether you have plenty, whether you are full or whether you are hungry, contentment means that you are satisfied in any of those life situations. And after Paul makes that point, he says the phrase, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
And that's where we get into trouble. What does he mean by this, right? What does he mean by, by do? And that, that, that action is essentially getting at the sense of like he can prevail or he can overcome something. And then the all this or all things in that verse 13, Paul is not claiming that he can have superpowers, right? That if he can't dunk the basketball, now he can. If he just prays this prayer that God can give him strength through Christ to overcome all things. No, it's everything God calls him to do in light of this topic of contentment. So I can do all things, or I can, uh, I can do all things in Christ means I can prevail in whatever circumstances come my way. I can be content no matter the season of life I find myself in. That's what the verse is getting at. And there's three big things that I think uh, is, is important to see in this text. One is that contentment is something that Paul learned. Did you catch that? That this is something that he learned the secret of being content. Meaning, being content is something that doesn't come naturally. It's something that, it's, it's a discipline. It's something you mature in. It's something that you grow in over time. The second thing that I want to highlight in this verse is also that Paul says that he has learned contentment in both fullness and hunger. And this is significant to understand what it means when he says that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. If all you have known, for example, is wealth and health, what happens when it's taken away? You don't know until it happens. And on the flip side, let's say you've, you've, you've learned how to get by on very little. And you, you don't have much wriggle room, and, and when, in the budget, you just learn to get by with, with a little bit of margin. But then you grow up, and you have a successful job, and access to resources you had never had growing up. And when that happens to you, what will happen? Will you be content in that situation too? Or will you be corrupted with greed and completely unsatisfied unless you get the next raise, the next promotion, the next level of wealth? Right? Paul is saying that in either situation, sin can mess up your heart, and you can still be restless. You can still be bitter. You can still want the next thing and more, or, or, or just, just be so uh, discontent in your life situation that you continue to be miserable, whether you are full or whether you are looking for something else. The third thing is that we have to notice where the source of Paul's contentment comes from. And just like the rejoicing, the source of contentment is Christ himself. The reason why he can be content in every situation is the strength that he has found is because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. He is so utterly satisfied in his relationship with Christ that whether he has plenty or he has little, he remains satisfied because of the consistency that he has in his relationship with Christ. It's a similar thing that you may have had this experience before. Like, you ever, you ever compare the experience of going to the grocery store when you're hungry versus full? You ever, you ever see how that affects the budget? and the outcome of the things that you buy, the impulse buys. If you go to the grocery store and you're super hungry, like you buy a lot of different things because you're thinking, I'm hungry for this, I'm hungry for that. But how does it change when you go to the grocery store when you're full, when you've had a big meal, like a big, hearty, like get you through winter, put meat on your bones type of meal, and you have that type of meal, and then you go to the grocery store, it's a little easier in the budget. You're just kind of like you get the essentials, like you just go through the motions because you're not doing these impulse buys. And there's a sense that when your soul is satisfied in the same way, it helps to be content in any situation. When your soul is hungry, 
Then you, you approach different situations from a different perspective that maybe you're irritable or you're annoyed or you're angry or you're anxious. But when you go through these situations where you're content in your soul in the Lord, it, it, it changes the outlook and the experience that you have, whether you have plenty or you have little. Now, one of the things that Paul starts to do in the following verses, 14 through 19, is he starts focusing on the relationship that he has with this local church and the brothers and sisters in Christ he has in the, the church in uh, Philippians. And this bond results in generosity towards Paul, even when other churches were not being generous. He, he highlights that I, I was in a time of need. Other churches did not fulfill that need, but you stepped up and did it. And so he starts talking about the relationship he has with this believer, these believers who, who, who fulfilled uh, a need that Paul had because of their generosity. But Paul focuses on the relationship not as just benefiting from their generosity, but how it was a sign of their spiritual health. He says in verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. It wasn't about the gifts for Paul. What I desire is that more be accredited to your account. Now, what does he mean by that phrase, accredited to your account? Although the language might seem transactional, he's not talking about a bank account on earth, but an account in heaven. This language is not about their material health, but it's a metaphor for their spiritual health that Paul is essentially saying, but what I really saw, what, I, what gave me joy when you were generous to me and other churches weren't, is how that was ex an expression of your maturity in Christ and how he rejoiced in their relationship that they shared in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was more encouraged by, is their spiritual health and not their material health. And Paul sees this generosity as an act of worship. He says in verse 18, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is not ultimately the person who receives this gift, he says. This gift, to me, was an act of worship to the Lord. And this, this, this act of worship is, it was towards the one who cares for us and satisfies us with the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So it raises the question, as I was looking at these following verses after verse 13, uh, I, was, I was wrestling a little bit with how do these verses relate to verse 13? What do they have to do with contentment? And one of the things that I think was profound that I missed a little bit the last time I preached through Philippians was this truth, that contentment strengthens relationships. And I didn't see that connection the last time I preached through Philippians. Contentment strengthens relationships. Remember, Paul is talking about this situation where a bunch of other relationships he had, they didn't see his, genera they didn't see his need and they didn't give to his need gen generously, but this one church did. But he's also saying whether they give or not, like I'm still going to be content in the Lord. I'm not going to let that ruin my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. He just simply loves the church like family because the relationship that he has with them is far deeper than the exchange of goods and services. It's a friendship based on companionship in Christ where all the parties involved find their satisfaction and contentment in Christ alone. So he's content. Paul's content in Christ who gives him strength whether people are generous to him or not, he says. And it frees him to view relationships not as a form of transaction, but something that's grounded in the gospel. Let me unpack what I mean by that a little bit. What do I mean by a friendship that's viewed as a transaction? Here's a question for you. What do you do uh, to give back to another person? 
Uh, sometimes I think if somebody does something generous to us, we return the favor out of requirement, out of this kind of sense of debt that we have, that we, that we don't want the other person who's been generous towards us to kind of get the upper hand. Let me, let me give you an example of maybe how this plays out. Let's say you're getting to know somebody, you're try, trying to develop a friendship, and this person, and you, you go out to lunch during your work, your work hour, your lunch hour, but this person is generous and says, I'm going to cover this lunch for you. Like, I just, I love that we got to hang out, I'm going to cover this lunch. One of the ways that we um, process that is almost this sense of obligation that I need to now find a time to take that person out so that I can pay for it next time because you almost feel this sense of debt now, like that this person now is almost relationally a, a, a little bit above you and you need to level it off again by returning the favor. Uh, and so there's this sense of requirement that you want to take that person out for lunch. Uh, not again, now it's not so much to get to know the person, but because, man, I need, to, I need to get that person back. I need to pay that person back. Or on the flip side, maybe if somebody's generous towards you, then maybe you have that expectation of them. And then you make it bitter, for example, if they don't end up taking you out again for another lunch or they don't end up covering it during that second time that you're hanging out. The gospel has a different impact on how we relate to one another because of the, the contentment we have when we're satisfied in Christ. In the gospel, if someone covers lunch for you, you, you enjoy that because you're developing a deep friendship. And the reason you would want to have lunch again is not to kind of even out some type of debt or transaction. It's for the sake of the relationship and the fellowship you have with Christ, regardless of who covers the lunch or not. That you're, you're after the depth of fellowship rather than trying to, to even the stakes with that person. And here is how the gospel transforms our relationship from something that can be transactional and material into something that's focused on the relationship and the spiritual health and unity of that relationship. So what is the key to that transformation? And Paul says back in verse 13 that he can have those relationships and he can face anything, whether people are generous to him or not, whether he, he, he has a full belly or a hungry belly, whatever, he, whatever situation or relationship that he finds, he can overcome those things because of his contentment that he finds in the strength provided by Christ. So let me conclude again with that, that question. Is it okay for athletes to, to like this verse? Can they use it as an inspiration uh, for their season? If you're an athlete and you already got this tattooed onto your body, do you need to get it taken off, right? That's the question. So like, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. I think the answer is yes, if you are thinking about this correctly, if you're applying it correctly to your season. This verse isn't about you having the strength to beat your opponents or to have a successful season. That's not the point of this verse. When applied correctly, it means you are so strengthened by your satisfaction in Jesus Christ that you're content or you rejoice however the season turns out. So if that's how you're applying the verse, it's a great verse to have you guiding you through a season. It means that you're going to be content whether you stay healthy in the season or you get injured. You're going to be content with wins or losses. You're content whether you make a deep run in the playoffs or you're knocked out of the first round. That's what the verse means, that God in Christ gives you the strength no matter what you're going to face this season. Now, to be clear, contentment does not mean that you can't be competitive or work hard during your season. Put in the work and leave it all on the field. Continue to do that as an athlete, 
but don't let the ups and downs of the athletic season steal your satisfaction in the Lord. That's what verse 13 is all about. Because your strength and joy is not found in the circumstances of your season, but in Christ himself. And this contentment is, is brought into every season of life, and it applies to all of us, not just folks that are in athletics. Another major verse in the Philippians um, that gets at a very similar point is Philippians 1.21 when Paul says, For me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. I actually think that would be a better tattoo. To live as Christ, to die is gain. That God has done such a work in Paul's life and in the Christian heart that he can even look at life and death as a win-win. That he's content with any outcome, whether he lives or he dies. And one of the things that Philippians teaches us in verse 13 is getting at is, is how the gospel has such a profound impact on any season of life, even if it's the type of season that you find miserable and hard to get through. Let, let me illustrate this by talking about literal season. Like, we, we know what's around the corner here in Minnesota, right? You guys, you guys know what's coming? You kind of feel it in the air. Temperatures are dropping. We had a 60-degree day, like what, last week? And we're not going to see that again until the end of April. You know what's coming, brothers and sisters, right? Winter is on its way. And one of the things I know about this church is a lot of you uh, didn't grow up in Minnesota. We were a lot of folks that are from around the, the world, from other states, other parts, where you don't have such a long winter. It's been fascinating pa pastoring you all because part of the discipleship process at Trinity City Church is how do I get you guys through winter, right? Because uh, I grew up here and there's an art form to it. And, and it is one of those things when you're facing a season that you don't particularly like, uh, how can you get through a season, whether in this case a literal season of winter or any season of life, still being content, still being able to persevere through it? It reminds me of an article, I remember reading this when I preached through the book of Philippians last time, an article that, that is titled, quote, Norwegian, The Norwegian Secret to Enjoying a Long Winter. How can somebody get content? in a long winter, because you can't change winter, it's going to happen, right? You're gonna shovel the snow, there's gonna be a bunch of ice, you're probably gonna fall down a couple of times, maybe a couple of you are gonna get injured, right? You're gonna go outside, your fingers are gonna be, gonna be just, they're gonna hurt, and your nose is gonna like freeze up, and all your boogers are gonna turn into icicles, like that's what's coming, right? So how do you get through that? How do the Norwegians or Scandinavian countries cope with the just long, dark, cold season? And this researcher who, who wrote the article studied this group because despite the terrible winter, uh, folks in Scandinavian countries tend to have a lower rate of depression. And this is what she says in her piece, quote, at first she was asking, why aren't people more depressed? And if there were lessons that could be taken elsewhere, but once she, once she was there, she says, I sort of realized that was the wrong question to be asking, she says. When she asked people, why don't you have seasonal depression, the answer was, why would we? And it turns out that in northern Norway, people view winter as something to be enjoyed, not something to be endured. How did they get there? How did they get to, like, this is like for many of you, that's not, when you talk about seasons where you don't rejoice, like, winter is not a season that brings you joy, right? When you're in February and you're just sick of it, how do you get to a point that you can not only endure it, but enjoy it, even though your circumstances and your season didn't change? And what is, the, what is some of the highlights from the article? Well, they talked about how they essentially embrace it. 
They embrace winter activities. They embrace things that are unique to that season. To apply it maybe to a culture like Minnesota, it's the, it's the activity of like, you know what? We're going to have a carnival for our city. We're not going to have it in June. We're not going to have it in August. When are we going to have it? January, right? We're going to have it right in the coldest month of the year. And so St. Paul celebrates a winter carnival, or in, Minnesota, or in the Minneapolis side, it could be the holodazzle, right? Or there's this embrace that both Scandinavian countries and also Minnesotans have of the sense of coziness is a big thing, which is not just a word that describes an ambiance in your house with like a fireplace or candles or, or warm heated blankets, but it's the sense that in this season you can embrace all that and more, that there's this sense of like, yeah, you can go to bed at like 7 p.m., right, in the middle of winter because it's dark and nobody's going to judge you. Like, if you did that in the summer, people would be like, why aren't you being more productive? Nobody does that in the winter because it's embraced that aspect of the season. Yeah, it's dark, and sometimes it gets discouraging how early it gets dark, but just go to bed early. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to judge you. You just embrace these aspects of the season, or even the beauty, the physical beauty that winter brings a region. Like, have you ever, it's one thing to see Minnehaha Falls uh, when there's been a lot of rain and it's the middle of summer. Have you ever seen it when it turns into a giant icicle? It's different, it's cold, but there's a, a different type of beauty that you get in that season that you don't get in other seasons. And I think there's something here that the gospel brings a similar thing. The gospel doesn't say it's going to change the outcome, that it's going to change the season, no. But the gospel transforms your perspective on the season, no matter what season you're in, to see the beauty, to see how God is working, to experience the contentment that's only found in Christ, regardless of the season that you find yourself in. Because the gospel is not just about positive thinking, it's a completely different way of life that utterly transforms the way that you see and experience everything. And it's because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that you can be in seasons where you can embrace suffering and see hope and joy in those seasons because of the reality of the gospel.